Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin with the top story. A big question. Is Washington's trade war with Beijing on a potentially irreversible course? The Treasury Department is planning to heighten scrutiny of Chinese investments in sensitive U.S. industries under an emergency law. Prepare to hear a whole lot more about this story through the week. We can begin by heading over to Asia and catching up with Ender Curran, our Chief Asia Economics Correspondent for Bloomberg News. And I'm really pleased to say he's joined with us late in the evening over in Hong Kong. So, Ender, great to have you with us on the programme this morning here in New York. Get us up to speed on what's about to happen this week. So it looks like, uh, Jonathan, at the very least, the U.S. are going to step up their scrutiny of Chinese investment in the U.S. itself. Now, this matters because it goes to the heart of the U.S. concerns about China's future industrial strategy. Remember, China wants to create this high-tech, world-leading economy and technology with a little help from the state. And the U.S. is none too pleased about it. But for China to do that, they, of course, need to source a lot of technology from the U.S. itself. So it seems like the U.S. are going to block off this channel um, of the U- of Chinese companies buying big tech companies or buying their components from the U.S. at the very least to try and slow down that, that advancement. So I think it illustrates uh, that this trade spat is getting ever deeper by the week. So we've got the external pressures on the Chinese. We've got the internal pressures they're responding to as well. And uh, to what extent was the triple R cut, the reserve requirement ratio cut over the weekend to address a softer Chinese economy? Yeah, I think benefit of the doubt in this one, I think it was more driven by domestic issues, Jonathan, rather than external per se. They have been saying for some time now that uh, smaller companies, medium-sized companies, are facing higher borrowing costs. It's not that they're explicitly... uh, easing policy or looking to juice up growth overall. It's a fairly targeted, modest measure. But at the same time, though, it's hard to completely ignore the broader macro backdrop of a slowing Chinese economy at the same time that the trade tensions are getting ever worse. So it's an indication that the policymakers are ready and willing to act if need be. And uh, there's a Harley-Davidson store. You know, if you're on the Bund and you go back towards where the residential sections are, in Shanghai, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but near Patuo, there's one of three Harley Davidson stores in Shanghai. So is, is the basic theme here, they're going to stop selling Harley Davidsons? Well, U.S. companies operating in China are considered vulnerable in all of this, Tom. There's no doubt about it. Um, the auto sector especially, you mentioned motorbikes, the auto spe- sector especially is vulnerable because GM and Ford have expanded big plants across China. Tesla wants to, Tesla wants to set up a big big manufacturing plant in China. So if the trade tensions reach a point, reach a point where China is striking back, well then life will be made a lot more awkward for those U.S. companies, including Harley. And Karen, we've got to let you run. So thank you very much for joining the programme um, late on in Hong Kong to get us up to speed on what is happening in China. Tony Krasinski, I'm really pleased to say, joins us in the New York studio. PIMCO's Executive Vice President and Market Strategist. Um, Tony, can you imagine that? Tom on a Harley. 
Well, I have a Honda if he wants to take a ride. On it. <laughs> uh, I, it, but it's a dirt bike. I wouldn't. Uh, I Do you really? Off. Yeah, like uh, since my youth, it's the thing, one of my things on Staten Island at least. But there's less and less land to ride on. Very cool. Very cool. Let's talk about China. I haven't really heard many people talking about a slower Chinese economy. Are you laser focused on that at the moment? Yes, it matters a lot. Uh, global nominal GDP this year will be in the low sixes. It matters. It means double-digit earnings growth for global corporations, which is supportive of the equity markets and the credit markets, and it's uh, it's vitally important for those assets. Uh, think of China's economy. It's 13 trillion in size, grows near 7%, so it's near 900 billion of new GDP for the world. What does the U.S. economy grow at? Low twos, $20 trillion economy, about half, a little more than half the amount of China's growth in GDP. So the major contribution to world GDP growth is China. When you think of the various things that have happened in recent years, the stabilizing force has been China's uh, China and its economy. So it matters a lot. Uh, what we are looking at, of course, is that these are these trade tensions. Small so far. Think of the 50, the tariff of 25% put on 50 billion of goods. What is that? 12.5 billion dollars of price change for U.S. consumers. Peanuts yeah. to a global economy that this year will grow about 95 trillion dollars. And to put in perspective for a long-term investor, think of the next three years, $300 trillion of world GDP, uh, and these tariffs, are you can't even, yeah, shouldn't even be you, mentioning them. How do you respond to the fact that China is so much of our marginal growth? It's not. It is for the world, but not, of course, for the United States, and that's Donald Trump's um, issue. He wants to see China buy more from us. China purchases about $150 billion of goods from us each year, but we buy about us Americans, $500 billion well, of their goods. And so we we're not that? getting we're not, much. These policies are not going to lead to boosted U.S. exports, are they? They're not likely to, but they will probably, well, actually they will. But the magnitude won't be great. There will be more of this sold okay. and that sold in, if yeah. these trade tensions subside. What are you watching in the short-term market? When you walk in the door, you've got three login Bloombergs, you've got 12 screens. What do you look at when you when you... Walk into the well, the initial, of course, uh, any money market trader was interested in where repo is for the day, where yeah. it is that large investors are putting the money yeah. overnight. Uh, We're and that's betting on Pharaoh to do to better 2%. Belgium, England. Yeah. <laughs> but in the are you bringing up my bracket? Oh yeah, I'm is looking at your bracket. Well, we'll I'm not looking because Italy, <laughs> the, the mother nation, Italy, is not in it, so I'm not. I know, Tony. Too much tough attention. times. It's tough times. But we look more when we think about the money market more generally. We're thinking of where is it that the market thinks the path will be for the federal funds rate, the Fed's mm. policy rate. Is it changing? That would only happen glacially. Uh, meaning it would take a lot of data and new information to change the market's view on where the Fed will end Agreed. with its path. What is that data? that you're going to glean? What What do you want to see that will allow you to know what Chairman Powell is going to do? The catalyst would be a change in inflation. He essentially, in his last press conference after the last FOMC meeting, the Fed's policy meeting, tossed out Nairu, meaning where the Fed yeah. thinks inflation won't accelerate anymore. The, the jobless rate is 3.8%. Typically, uh, an economist historically would say, well, Jobless rates low, 3.8, but anything below X would mean higher inflation rate. Yeah. That hasn't happened. And so we watch you know, it. And John Tucker, you'll know this. Tony Crescenzi with his dirt bike, when he, when he was a kid on Staten Island, 
They went out past Western Avenue to the container terminal. <laughs> he tried to do the evil Knievel thing evil Knievel. over to Elizabethport. That evil Knievel toy. You wind him up he and he'd jump to, anything. To it's one of the few places over... in New York City you can actually ride a dirt bike, Staten yeah. Island. I didn't know that. Open I like land. to do donuts and wheelies and go yeah. uh, through over sure. ramp, ramps like evil Knievel did. Your parents did. just said you're not going over the Elizabethport region. As long as I stay off the has, has pavement. Pim, has I'm Pimco good. got a special insurance plan for they you? They do. They have the Casenza insurance. Well, we don't go too fast doing a donut in the dirt, so um, I think we'll be safe. Tony Crescenzi, great to have you with us. Tony, Co's thank executive you so much. Vice President Tony, what's and Italy, market strategist. What's Italy need to do to get back into the World Cup? They, is it like youth organization thing they need to do? Yes, we have need to invest in human capital. Jeffrey Dennis with us, with UBS out of Boston uh, this morning on Emerging Market. Jeff, how do you define dollar strength? Is it through DXY, that blended trading number? Is there a certain currency pair that you're watching that was your indication of future dollar strength? We tend to follow dollar-euro as being the best uh, indicator of quote-unquote dollar strength. But, of course, technically you're right, Tom, that you should be looking at, at the dollar trade weighted. But I think the world tends to look at, as I say, dollar-euro as your, your best indicator that's of what not, we really mean by dollar strength. But that, that dollar-euro, euro-dollar, rather, doesn't have EM in it, does it? No, no, no. But I think the point, the point, um, uh, obviously, as far as emerging markets are concerned, we have our own way of looking at it because we compare the emerging market index in dollars with the emerging market index in the local currency, and that gives you a measure of EM currencies overall. But if the question was about what the generalized um, trend in, in, in the dollar is around the world, I think the best way to read that in terms of is money coming into the U.S. dollar or out of the U.S. dollar is versus the euro. How reliable is this CFTC data just to get a broader sort of idea of what's happening in the FX market in terms of positioning, Jeff? And, and what have we learned over the last week? Well, I mean, I, this is this sort of position data is the sort of thing that, you know, it, it, it's, it's as good as we've got. So we probably try to use it as best as we can, even though, of course, it's, it's not perfect. But, you know, when, when something is there and you don't have much alternative, you, you tend to use that as, a, uh, as an idea. I mean, I think what we would be, we were beginning to think that the dollar strength was beginning to run out of steam a little bit, um, you know, around the 116, 170 level against the euro. I think probably there is a little bit of a reduction at the margin in terms of uh, dollar longs going on over the last couple of weeks because the dollar has started to flatten out. But the point is you're not seeing people going long the euro yet, let alone, of course, long emerging market currencies, which you would need to see yeah. as, as, you know, the equivalent or the equivalent move to, to a weaker dollar going forward. So, so dollar may be peaking. I'm not sure it's going down yet. Well, that's what I was going to ask, Jeff. I mean, in the initial phase, you get the unwinding of the shorts, the capitulation of the shorts and then you start to question yeah. whether we can build fundamental longs here on the US dollar. Have we even reached that phase where people are really building long-term fundamental longs in the US dollar? Oh, I suspect they they are. I mean, clearly, if you go back to the early part of the year when dollar euro is at 125 briefly, everyone was long euro. That's now unwound itself. I think people have moved long dollar. 
because the U.S. economy has been so strong and Europe has been has been disappointing. So I think from a technical point of view, all this is uh, above my pay grade. From a technical point of view, my guess is that the market is slightly long dollar. Um, our, our view is the dollar is, is fundamentally overvalued. Our view is the Fed is broadly <coughs> priced in now. We think gradually the ECB is going to withdraw um, excessive stimulus. They're going to start to raise rates probably in the third quarter of next year. And the blip in the European economies in the first quarter was probably just a blip, and we see decent growth going forward. Those are all the reasons why ultimately we would be sellers of the dollar, not buyers of the dollar. But obviously, frankly, Mm -hmm. the market's trying to work out which way we go from here. What about EM equities? I mean, they had a heck of a run. I mean, they do what they do. I guess they're you know they're um, uh, uh, cyclical, and they you yeah. know down, down, down. They go up. What about now, Jeff? Well, we're we're inclined to be positive from here, even though there's a, a flood of negative news at the moment. The reason we're inclined to be positive is partly because of our of that dollar view. We expect to see, um, you know, the dollar going lower. That will start to push money back towards the emerging markets going forward. We've made the comment to people that, in fact, the the fundamental damage to the asset class from the sell-off recently has not been that great. We've seen very little in the way of global. I'm sorry, of, of economic growth downgrades in EM. We've cut Brazil. We've cut South Africa, cut Indonesia a little bit, but you're not seeing broad downgrades. Also, earnings numbers are holding up pretty well, and that means the valuation opportunities have opened up in EM. But the key from here is, is are we anywhere near right as far as the dollar is concerned? And now I think we've got to worry about what the impact of this trade rhetoric and the ratcheting up of this trade action will have on the Chinese economy. And I think that's what people are worrying about today with the cut in reserve requirements. Does it mean the Chinese economy is weaker than we all think? If the Chinese economy were to weaken significantly, that was that would were to put downward pressure right. on the Chinese currency. That would be a reason why people would hold off from buying emerging markets, uh, emerging market equities at this point in time. So, Jeff, are you seeing the weakness in the currency, uh, and do you see a Chinese establishment uh, beginning to use the FX channel as a policy tool to ag- address the uh, the softening that we're seeing in the economy? I don't think so. I think you assume the currency move today is in reaction to the reserve requirement cut. I think what you've got to assume is the reserve requirement cut is partly a response to the concerns over the economy slowing down mm-hmm. in the second quarter and, of course, the potential impact down the road of, of trade action from the U.S. on the Chinese economy. Although, to be fair, our economists have argued all year that you will see some liquidity injection into the economy from the Chinese authorities through lower reserve requirements. They've not been looking for a rate cut. So in some sense, this is actually pretty much what, what was expected. But I think what's happening here is it's causing the market to worry about Chinese growth. And it's that that's bringing the currency down. And there's no sign whatsoever of the Chinese authorities wanting to use the currency right. directly as a weapon, if you like, to uh, to fight right. the impact of, of a U.S. trade war. Right. Jeff Dennis, very quickly here. Eastern Europe is something John and I have been remiss in talking about with a focus on Pacific Rim trade wars. Eastern Europe, where is the opportunity there? Without any question, we, we like Polish equities. We like Hungarian equities. They're both very small markets, especially Hungary. But the point there is that these economies are very closely tied to Europe. And we think what you saw in the first quarter, weaker European growth, is almost certainly temporary. Also, currency, you tend to get a double whammy in both directions on the currency. That when the euro starts to go back up again against the dollar, which is our longer-term view, the, the best bet is these currencies will even appreciate mm-hmm. against well. the, the euro itself. 
itself. The Poland, for example, is growing at over 4%. We like the market. Right. It's had a tough start to the year. We think there are opportunities there going forward. Well, thank you so much, Jeff Dennis. Greatly appreciate it with UBS EM Primer uh, today. And- a joy. Deborah Lair with us, who is with the Paulson Institute as a vice chairman. And uh, Deborah Lair brings a really interesting and nuanced uh, thinking to this relationship as Secretary Paulson has done of America and China. Deborah, I want to go to your Twitter feed where you retweet Eric Fish with a Reuters story. And this has been something in my mind. It comes off Elizabeth Economy's work at the Council on Foreign Relations. Do, does the president and does all of America understand that China is heading towards she thought that there's going to be a new almost zeitgeist that permeates Chinese politics? Well, that's really a, an excellent question. I don't think probably all of America understands, but I think there's a concern within the administration, and this is part of what's driving, I think, the use of national security um, legislation or policies to look at economic security and seeing the two because of these concerns. For example, President Xi chaired a very important meeting this past week on foreign policy and was outlining a very aggressive foreign policy that has international and domestic implications. Secretary Paulson's uh, heritage at Treasury and with the Paulson Institute has been to speak to China, to develop a dialogue. I literally was with him the day this started. I can't recall the event, but it was a Treasury event in Washington where he really tried to jumpstart a discussion. Has that been destroyed? Has been the Paulson initiative of eight, nine years ago, is it, is it just gone? Well, in its current form, yes. I mean, the, we started the strategic economic dialogue as a way to fit within China's decision-making process so yeah. that we could get basic agreement on some of the big issues that would be facing the United States and China. And once they had the guidance from the top, it would be much easier at the working level to sort out the details. At this stage, most of the dialogue appears to be occurring at the cabinet secretary level to the vice premiers in China with little right. at the working level. Well, to Richard McGregor's work in the Communist Party, is it a new Communist Party? Is President Xi really running a re, not a reaffirmation of Mao? I think that's too simplistic. But is it a reaffirmation of a stronger dominant Communist Party, whatever American elites think? Well, certainly Richard McGregor's book really was excellent and still is very relevant today. The what, what Xi's biggest challenge in coming into office was is that he did not have the tools to govern his country on a day-to-day basis. He could reach down into the system to grab a dissident or something like that, but he could not ensure that mayors and um, Mm -hmm. provincial governors were implementing his policies consistently. In fact, it was so bad that he continues to send out um, policy enforcement teams to go check that they're actually, local officials are actually implementing and doing what they're supposed to be doing. And he viewed, and this is why the anti-corruption campaign ended up being 
seminal to his first term, his view was, I need to get back those tools of government to to govern my country, and I'm going to do it through the Communist Party. And we see the Communist Party playing a, a much bigger role than it has historically since before Deng. And it's not only involved in party matters, but it's in the economy, it's in private business, mm-hmm. and it's something that American companies are going to have to face as they go forward. So, Deborah, just as a final question, what does the concentration of power in China ultimately mean for these trade discussions, the trade negotiations with the United States? Well, ironically, it might make it a little bit easier since the president, she is very much calling the shots in terms of what can be done. And he's put some very sophisticated um, bureaucrats around him with Wang Qishan and Liu He, who really understand how markets work, who understand and have a long background with the United States, have ties with a broad range of government officials, former government officials and business leaders. But she and the president have a very good working relationship. And ultimately, I think that this deal is going to be done between the two presidents. Deborah, thank you so much. We look forward to speaking to you again soon. Deborah Lair with the Paulson Institute. This story is not going to go away, and we really appreciate her uh, international relations uh, perspective. We go to London now. Karen Ubelhart with us as General Electric breaks up and up. How many more of these transactions, Karen, are there? This is a $3 billion bolt-off, not a bolt-on, a bolt-off. How many more bolt-offs are there for uh, GE? Well, I, I think um, what they've been signaling is that they're going deep down, and and uh, there's not a lot of big seg- segments left to sell, but they're going within segments and looking for pieces. And this is rather small, you know. All of power was 36 billion, and this in sales, and this has a billion in sales. So they're getting deep down and dirty to try to get pieces of of um, uh, mm-hmm. the company that, and uh, you know, they sold the whole transportation business. That's probably the last. That is the last big unit, in my opinion, um, that they'll sell. Uh, they have a lighting business, very small, not going to get them much money. Um, and then they'll do something with, um, you know, Baker Hughes GE um, at some point as well. So I think they're telling you, you know, like the GE Power is a huge business. Their big problems are in the big turbines, but and there's stuff that they're going to sell around the margin. Does this really matter? It doesn't look like the investors are really that no, thrilled about it. Doesn't it. I really mean, matter. we're down twelve cents. I mean, okay, so you sell. I mean, these this business uh, based in Austria, making uh, reciprocating engines and generator sets, right? Uh, diesel mm-hmm. engines as mm-hmm. well. Uh, why bother to do this? Well, you know, when he came out with his first twenty billion dollars, you know. Um, in asset sales and the and the stock went down like six percent this was this was in that and he's looking at all small things and it's not enough we knew it wasn't enough when he announced 20 billion but he's methodically chipping off these little pieces and the one good thing is everything he sold so far he's gotten better than expected proceeds but it's too small this was people were talking price talk was two billion they got three and a quarter transportation people were talking seven billion they got 10 billion um, so they're getting better prices but they, they're not selling anything big enough to matter. Is the dividend safe? I think that that jury is still out. 
I mean, I, I you know, I think that they're going to try, um, but, you know, it's going to get tight toward the latter part of the year. So I think right. um, investors still expect there's a chance of that happening. It, with all that's going on politically, is GE Power's salvation China? I mean, if the power business is flat on its back, does does China need GE Power? Well, you know, GE, th- that's a very consolidated business. So it's GE, it's Siemens, it's Mitsubishi. So, yeah, I mean, uh, China's, uh, you know, going to have to buy some, th- you know, uh, power from GE for sure. The problem is most of these emerging markets, including China, aren't buying the mega stuff that that is the core of their product line, the, the big the big turbines and um, both gas and steam. So they've got to redirect the product line, as does everybody in the business. So bottom line is they've got to shut yeah. a lot of capacity. Well, I was going to say, is it, is it all fixed cost or are there actually variable costs, which they can uh, variable out the door? Well, they're doing that already. They've taken a billion out. Um, their goal is uh, for 2018, another billion of co- you know laying off people, um, trying to um, cut costs, but eventually it's got to be bricks and mortar. There's too much capacity globally, you know, at GE and across the industry. And, you know, they bought Alstom and, you know, it's hard to close things in, in France. So that's one that they're kind of stuck with for a while. So they've got to do something with the, the GE part of the business. What do you think Nelson Peltz wants them to do? He's uh, got a little bit under 1% of the stock. Uh, you know, I think that he's going to want a bigger breakup. Um, I, I'm not sure that the whole thing is going to be broken up. I'm not in that camp. I've, I think that uh, they've got two of their three big businesses are good, good businesses. Um, I think, you know, he certainly would want them to get out well, of as much as they can. But um, he's got two right. of the three businesses are good businesses the, that he'll remain The with. EBITDA margin 13 cents in the dollar. What do you model that, folks, this is from the revenue uh, statement you come down off sales and somewhere in the vicinity of net income is a thing called EBITDA. They're making 13 cents in the dollar. Can they get back that back to a, you know, 15, 16 cents in the dollar? I think they can if they can stabilize power, but it's got that's a multi-year problem. I mean, they're making 20, you know, uh, on an EBITDA basis, you know, 25, 26 cents in in uh, on the dollar in uh, in aerospace, and they're making you know almost 20 in in healthcare. So they're way over that in a couple of okay, businesses. Okay, but they need triage now. They don't yes. have multi-year. Yes. This. What do you do with GE Power with the urgency to 12:31 that they have? I I think what they're going to do is try to monetize other assets. Um, frankly, like I I think that they'll sell some of the. They've got a twenty five billion dollar investment in Baker Hughes. Yeah, I know, but, but you know, well, how much? What's the employee count in GE Power roughly? Any idea? Uh, let's see. They did. They're they're doing. Um, I. Oh, you don't know. That's okay. Yeah, I'm not you know. exactly sure. No, that's fine. It's big. <laughs> the answer is they got three hundred and thirteen three one three. They have more employees than J P Morgan. I mean, they're not Walmart, but the answer is they got a zillion bodies in GE Power, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, they were selling, they laying off twelve thousand people, and that was about six to eight percent. So it's it's okay. a big number. It's a big number, and that's where they have to work. They have, yeah. Are they ready to make those tough decisions? I think in power, they know that they have to do big things. Yeah. I think they're trying okay. to figure out what to do. He's a methodical guy, and that's part of the right. thing that's frustrating people. Are you, in, you know. are you in England just to watch Belgium, England, and football? 
Uh, no. There, no, I'm here for a conference. But okay. That, there was a lot of talk about that. There a is lot a of, lot of talk. Yeah. Yeah, try yeah. to get up to speed. You'll know more than me. Karen Lamart, <laughs> thank you. With, uh, Bloomberg Intelligence on GE. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.